Take your scripture and turn with me to 1 Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3. We'll be looking this morning at verses 8 uh, through 12, but specifically uh, focusing just on that 8th verse. Last Lord's Day, we uh, read verses 8 through 17, and we're focusing Uh, together there last week uh, as Peter directs us that all of us uh, have to be uh, reminded of the reality of the evil uh, which is around us, the suffering that comes to the church and what our response to that evil is to be and who our Redeemer is from that evil and who enables us uh, to respond with blessing when we are cursed and endure suffering for righteousness sake. Uh, But we had passed over uh, verse 8. Uh, which uh, speaks not so much now about the uh, attitude, uh, our heart, uh, toward the world around us uh, in which evil is present, uh, but verse 8, which speaks about actually the uh, relationships uh, within the church itself. And so we'll read from 1 Peter 3, uh, verses 8 through 12. This is the ever-living and abiding uh, word of God. Finally, uh, all of you, Uh, Have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we can have this uh, awesome privilege again. Lord, to first of all, be given life itself, to be able to get out of bed this morning, to be able to breathe and to see and to hear and uh, and to come to, to this place uh, and to join with your people to hear uh, your word. We thank you, Lord, for that blessing. And so, Lord, we pray now uh, that uh, your ears would be uh, open to us today, uh, Lord, that you would hear our prayer, that, Lord, as your word is preached, Lord, we would pray that by your Holy Spirit, you would apply wonderfully that word to each and every one of our hearts and that we would be drawn ever closer uh, to you. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, when I say the, the word uh, church, what comes to mind? Church. What do you think of when you hear that word? R.B. Kuyper, a professor at Westminster Seminary many, many years ago in Philadelphia, wrote this about the church. The Word of God tells us that Christ's church is glorious. Not only does history ascribe to it a past that is in many respects glorious, and does prophecy predict for it a glorious future, it is essentially glorious. The Christian church is glorious in its very nature. Today, the glory of the church is thickly veiled. It is no exaggeration to assert that in the main it presents a picture of advanced decadence and extreme Feebleness. Now, Kuiper was writing back in the 50s. 
Let it be said emphatically, said Kuiper, the church is where the truth is. Sound doctrine always has been, is today, and ever will be the foremost mark of the true church. But who dares to assert that there is today in the churches a rising tide of interest in doctrine? By and large, people, listen to what he says here, by and large, people do not go to church to learn about God from his infallible word, but rather to be tranquilized. You know what it means to be tranquilized? It means to be put to sleep. And that the glory of God is both the beginning and the end of common worship does not seem to occur to them. The world, he says, and we just talked about this last week, the world has ever opposed the church and always will. The struggle between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent is not only perennial, that is every year, ongoing, but perpetual, ongoing, ongoing. Yet it can hardly be said that today the world hates the church with a violent hatred, particularly, he says, in these United States. The world rather slights the church. That is, it regards the church with a benevolent tolerance as a harmless, perhaps even somewhat helpful, but not overly useful institution. That attitude itself, he says, casts a serious reflection upon the church. If it were strong and active as it ought to be, the world would oppose it much more vigorously. Persecution by the world, says Kuiper, is a a badge of honor for the church. Did not Jesus pronounce blessed those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness? And does not that beatitude apply to all faithful followers of the Lamb? But by and large, the church of our day and our land has lost that badge and forfeited that blessedness. And that, he says, is another way of saying that the church's most imminent peril issues from its own household. So what Kuiper is saying, you know, all last week we were talking about the evil against the church. But what Kuiper is simply saying there is that uh, the world is not going to persecute a church that's not uh, the church and is not being the church. Is not strong and active and actually living as Christ has called us to live. The world doesn't care about that kind of church. It cares about the church that's actually living for Christ. And we're losing out, says Kuiper, on some of the blessedness that Jesus pronounces on the persecuted church when we're not simply being the church ourselves. So what is the church? And what does it look like? So we talked about our relationship to the evil around us. But what about our relationship to one another? What are the relationships within the church uh, to look like? Uh, Well, we read it in verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. The New American Standard says, to sum up, let all be harmonious, sympathetic, brotherly, kind-hearted, and humble in spirit. Now, the first thing we need to realize, of course, is that uh, even as Peter gives this description of the the glorious body of Christ, the church, uh, it's not meant to be an exhaustive description. You can find other wonderful descriptions of who the church is in other passages, like Romans 12, 9 to 18, Colossians 3, 12 to 14. Um, But though it's not exhaustive, it gives a beautiful kind of uh, five-picture collage of the glorious body of Christ. And I thought it'd be helpful maybe to think about it this way. The Bible speaks about uh, giving, for instance, the right hand of fellowship. And so we're going to think about these five uh, pictures here that the Apostle gives us as five fingers on the hand of fellowship. 
And next Lord's Day, for instance, we're going to extend the right hand of fellowship to Bobby and Ruth Mendoza. And we're going to put our hand in their hand and welcome them into this church. And so this morning we want to think about the five fingers of fellowship. First finger is this, the Bible says, harmony, not discord. Harmony, not discord. Have unity of mind. Finally, uh, all of you, says Peter, have unity of mind. Or, like I said, from New American Standard, could be translated, let all be harmonious. Uh, That is, uh, live in harmony with one another. Live in harmony with one another, uh, writes Kuiper. The harmony that prevails among the members of Christ's body is made to stand out strikingly in relation to their diversity. Harmony presupposes diversity. When identical voices sing identical notes, no one thinks of harmony. But when different voices singing different notes blend with one another, the product is harmony. If the human body consisted of several parts, all of the same size and shape, harmony would be out of the question. Now that it consists of many widely differing members, all aiding one another, the quality of harmony is outstanding. Says Kuiper, there's much diversity among the members of Christ's church. Uh, Some have, here, here what he says, some have five talents, others but one. Some have attractive characters, others are relatively unattractive. Some are leaders, uh, others followers. Some are rich, others poor. Some are highly educated, others unlearned. Some are strong in the faith, others weak. But each, he says, each needs all the others. They complement one another. They cooperate with each other. Collectively, they constitute one body. And all are bound together by the greatest of Christian virtues, love. This, he says... Uh, is harmony indeed. You already said there, identical voices singing identical notes is not harmony. That would be uniformity if all of us were exactly uh, the same. But that's not the church. That's not the church. Harmony presupposes diversity. You know, just think of 1 Corinthians 12 where the Apostle Paul talks about the body, right? We're not all the same part, and and Kuiper mentions that too. Uh, The body, in order to function properly, has all sorts of different parts, Uh, But the beauty of it is that they all, when they're working properly, work in harmony. Eyes and ears and feet and um, hair even, you know, uh, whatever it is. Working in harmony. Now the word here translated, um, uh, have unity of mind, could be uh, be translated uh, this way. All these words, by the way, are adjectives here. They're all all saying um, things like this. Together understanding. Uh, So have unity of mind means understanding together, or uh, even though you're all diverse, there's harmony because you're all coming around together, uh, understanding uh, one thing together, Um, even though there's great diversity. This is mentioned elsewhere in the scripture. So for instance, the Apostle Paul uh, over in Romans uh, 15, verse 5, says this, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may, with one voice, glorify the God and Father uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Live in such harmony with one another, says Paul, in accord with Christ Jesus. And of course, perhaps one of the most uh, famous passages that speak about this uh, unity of mind or harmony together, Philippians 2, 2, Paul says, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord Uh, and of one mind. Have unity, says Peter, of mind. Live in harmony. Be harmonious 
with one another. Now, of course, having uh, unity of mind raises this obvious question. Whose mind unites us? Um, Now, our search committee needs to ask and answer that question. How uh, will we be unified? I mean, we've got nine members on the search committee. Hard enough to be unified by yourself, right? To be of one mind. So now you've got nine. And then you've got the hundred in the, in the church family. Um, so whose mind is going to uh, uh, unite us uh, together? Well, you know where this is going. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says this, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. A non-Christian does not have the Holy Spirit, knows nothing of what the Bible is all about until the Holy Spirit comes. But the spiritual person judges all things, but he is himself to be judged by no one. For who has understood, here is what it says, for who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we, says Paul, have the mind of Christ. That's what Paul says about Christians. We have collectively, together, have the mind of Christ. That's the That's the together understanding according to Jesus Christ, you see. That brings us together so that a church is in harmony. Discord comes uh, when we lose sight of the mind of Christ. There are many different instruments, of course, in an orchestra. But when you have a great conductor with all eyes focused on him, that is Christ, following his lead, you make great music. Not each member, of course, you know, playing his favorite piece, right? Let's say you get 20 musicians together uh, and say, okay, we're going to make some music. And each musician says, okay, this is my favorite piece. I'm going to play this. The other person says, well, I'm going to play this. And so you got 20 different pieces of music. No, that doesn't work. Uh, but if you all have unity of mind, that is, if you're uh, focusing uh, on, the, uh, on the director. And if he is a great uh, leader, you see, as Jesus is, there will be harmony, not discord. So that's the first finger, harmony not discord, and there is uh, sympathy, not indifference. Sympathy, not indifference. Listen to Peter. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Sympathy. Uh, in the New American Standard, it says be sympathetic. Uh, but actually, again, it's an adjective. It means having sympathy. So not only are you having unity of mind, but you're, finally, all of you, you're having sympathy. Uh, having sympathy. The word sympathy means, in the Greek, feeling with. It means feeling with. Uh, for instance, the Apostle Paul uh, mentions this in Romans 12, verse 15. So wonderfully, he says this, rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep uh, with those who, who weep. Right? 1 Corinthians 12, the Apostle Paul, uh, in that wonderful chapter, 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says this, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now, did you notice that the Apostle Paul does not say, if one member suffers, we all imagine, we all imagine what suffering might be like. No, he says, if one member suffers, all members suffer Rejoice with those who rejoice, not pretend to rejoice or uh, imagine what it might be to rejoice, but to actually to feel with. 
So whether in joy or in suffering, the Apostle Peter says here, the church is the place where you find uh, believers who feel with their fellow believers. To feel with simply means to take into your heart. That is to bring someone else's experience into your own affections so that you feel them. As we saw last week, the Bible says we're to remember those in prison as though in prison with them. It doesn't mean, um, you know, we just imagine, oh, we might be in prison someday. No, the Bible says when you think about our brothers and sisters, when I think about our brothers and sisters being persecuted, I need to uh, imagine myself there. And then what would I pray? Or what would be my need? You see, Paul said to the Jew, I became like the Jew to win the Jew. Uh, I became to those without the law as one without the law to win those without the law. And so sympathy, not indifference. Sympathy, uh, according to uh, the Merriam-Webster dictionary, is different from empathy. Uh, Merriam-Webster describes empathy as where you simply, where you imagine or you, you try to understand how someone might feel without necessarily having those feelings yourself. Right? You're just having a mental exercise. Well, I'm trying to imagine what that would be like. Sympathy, says Miriam Webster, is, is, uh, is sharing those feelings of another. That is feeling with them, having a fellow feeling, suffering together. Mutually commiserative. Um, This is what Christians do. We put ourselves in the shoes of our fellow believers so we may know as best we can what they are feeling so that we might feel it too. A single person feeling what maybe a married couple would feel in the church. An older person feeling with a uh, a 15-year-old who's struggling with alcohol or drugs, feeling with them. Uh, Sympathy is to feel with. Driving by someone with a flat tire saying, uh, poor thing, and driving by is not sympathy. Seeing someone weeping and saying, I'll pray for you, but you never do, is not sympathy. Knowing someone is alone and lonely Hoping someone will befriend them, but not you, is not sympathy. It is Jesus coming to Martha and Mary, uh, who are weeping over the death of their brother Lazarus, and Jesus weeping with them. It is the Apostle Paul saying, we are to rejoice with those who rejoice, and to weep with those who weep. Now, how are we doing with this? How are you doing with this? Feeling with the other members of the church. Do you keep at arm's length from your fellow church members here at Sovereign Grace? How can you feel with somebody if you don't know them? Never ask them how they are feeling or what they're going through. Well, you can't. You can't be obedient to the Lord. Um, How can you feel with them if you have never had them in your home? 
and been obedient to the Lord that way and practicing hospitality, saying, come into my home. I want to know you because I, I want to be sympathetic because you're a fellow believer and that's what Christian brothers and sisters do. To be sympathetic, not indifferent. That's, that's the second thing. So there's harmony, not discord. There's, there's sympathy, uh, not indifference. And that's, it's family, not strangers. Notice what, notice what Peter says. Have unity of mind, uh, finally all of you. Sympathy, uh, brotherly love. Brotherly love. You know we heard this morning in adult education, uh, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. That's the Greek word underlying that translation. Here it means fond of the brethren. Here it's actually, again, it's an adjective. It actually is translated, should be translated, loving the brethren. This is what the church does. Loving the brethren. Only place it appears in the New Testament in this form. Loving the brethren. That's what the church is all about here. Now note here how Peter says simply love of the brethren. Now this is, of course, this is familial language. This is the language of the family. That is, Peter's saying, listen, the beauty and the glory of the body of Christ is the understanding and the conviction that I am a part of the family of God and that I have I have brothers and I have sisters right alongside me to bless me and for me to bless. It's important to Peter. He said it earlier in chapter 1, verse 22, having pure, describing those who have been born again by the word of God, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. There it was again. So the assumption here is that the church is a family and that you think of the church as your family. Loving the brethren of whom we are. Now imagine for a minute, imagine a family uh, who only gathered, try to picture now, we're talking about a blood family. Imagine your family at home. Imagine a family who only gathered for, let's say, an hour or two during the week for a family meeting. But they never heard, saw, or thought of that family the rest of the week. What kind of family would that be? And let's say your family was really radical and met twice during the week for a meal. But you said, well, one time with family in the week is... All I can handle. To meet twice with my family during the week? Mother, father, brother, sisters, children, I just can't do it. I just don't have time. What would you call such a family? I'd call it dysfunctional. I'd call it a family that's not a family. I'd call it a believer that has no idea of what Peter is saying here. That you are, as the church, those who've been born again, this is your family. Brothers and sisters in the Lord. This is your family. There is such a thing as family olatry. It's close to the word idolatry. And uh, I don't know if it's a real word, but we'll call it family olatry. That is, uh, making an idol of the blood family when you are a Christian. Uh, Jesus talks about this quite powerfully uh, in uh, 
In Matthew 10, verse 37, uh, where he says this, something you may not like, but nonetheless, it's God's word. And Jesus says this, whoever loves father or mother more than me, now that's a very important phrase, more than me, is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me, says Jesus, is not worthy of me. Now, the key phrase there, of course, is more than me. No, says Jesus. If you love your blood family more than Jesus, you're not worthy to be called a Christian. That's what that means. So Jesus is saying their primary allegiance for the Christian, for the church, who will be persecuted if they are the church, primary allegiance is to Jesus, and because he's the head, and his people are his body, his members, you love Christ, you love his body. You love Christ, you love his people. You love Christ, you love your brothers and sisters in the faith, you're, you're loving the brethren. That's what the church is. This is your family. These are your brothers and sisters. Do you know them? Maybe... Maybe you don't even know their name here today. But you're yet your brothers and sisters. Do you love them? Do you love to spend time with them? Or do you love to, to praise God with them, which is what you will be doing with them if you're a Christian forever in eternity? Is that what beats in your heart for the folks gathered here to worship the Lord? Do you choose a meal at home with your blood family over gathering for worship with your eternal family? Say, no, I can't, can't join with the church family today. I gotta, I, gotta, I gotta do this, or I gotta walk the dog, or I gotta, I gotta take the kids to, to something. Or... Jesus says, you're not worthy of me if I am not first in your allegiance and if my body is not first. In your family. Acts 2, you might know, describes the early church uh, devoted to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and prayers. Uh, The Bible says there in Acts 2, they gathered day by day. Now, that's hard to believe, but they did it. They gathered day by day. Martin Lloyd-Jones once said this, elders and ministers today have a hard time convincing people uh, to come to church and to come and worship God, said Lloyd-Jones. In the early church, they had to convince them to go and to leave, <laughs> right? Day by day. No, you got to go home. You know, you, you, can't, you, can't be with, you can't be worshiping God all the time, early church. you got to go home. you got kids. you got, you got you to do your, your tent making and stuff like that. You can come back again, but uh, you, you can't be here all the time. But today, said Lloyd-Jones, we've got to convince people that he is worthy. Well, we're... It's harmony, not discord. It's sympathy, not indifference. It's, it's family. It's not strangers. And, uh, uh, and it's tender hearts, not hard hearts. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, loving the brethren, a tender heart. Some translate it as kind-hearted or, in a command, be compassionate. Be compassionate. Um, Colossians 3, uh, verse 12 the Apostle Paul uh, helps us here, understanding what this is all about. Colossians 3, verse 12, Paul will say this, Put on, then, 
as God's chosen ones, right? This is who Peter's talking to. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. What do you put on? What's the Christian wardrobe? Well, he starts with this. Put on compassionate hearts. Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, which is simply to say, the Bible says, listen, you don't have these in yourself. You're not going to love any brethren. You're not going to understand the church as your family. You're not going to have unity of mind. And you're certainly not going to be compassionate to others or have a tender heart unless you understand this is something that comes to you from the outside. This is something you have to put on uh, that comes from Christ. Because the first right before Colossians 3.12 says this about the church. Paul says, here, here, there's not Greek and Jew, circumcised, uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free. We don't make those kind of distinctions in the, in the church of God. Here he says, but Christ is all and in all. And then he says, put on that. So where Christ is all in all, Christians, believers like us who believe, understand that to be compassionate, to have a tender heart instead of a hard heart, the only way I have that is when I have put on Christ. Put my faith in Christ, and he's my all in all. It's part of the new self, you see. Who we are, not in ourselves by nature, but who we are as believers in Jesus Christ, the church. Therefore, says Peter, get dressed. You're not, you know, you're not tender-hearted by nature. We are hard-hearted. Hard-hearted by nature. Don't believe me? How do you explain voters in the state of California approving Proposition 1 by over 60%, enshrining abortion in the constitution of the state, the so-called right to murder the unborn. Or not even that, how do you you explain 57% of voters in the state of Montana saying, this year, this week, if an attempted abortion results in an infant being born alive, 57% of folks in Montana said, you let them die. You do nothing to save them. 57%. Let them die. Does that sound familiar? It should. You know any history? You read about Rome in the first century where um, baby girls... hmm? Unwanted children left out on the hills. Maybe, maybe, you know, if the animals didn't get them, maybe somebody, maybe a Christian would, would come along and see them and save them. But uh, well, there wasn't always a Christian coming by. That's a hard, that's a hard heart. But a kind heart is what characterizes, you see, the church. Tender hearts. Tender hearts means when you see suffering, you act to help and to save the suffering. The hard heart stands idly by. The hard heart, as we see in Scripture, walks by on the other side. The tender heart crosses the road, bandages those wounds, gives a ride, pays the bill, invites them into their home, offers a bed. The Greek word here 
uh, for uh, tender heart is the Greek word splachna. I love that word. I think I've shared that word with you before. Can't help it. Uh, has something to do, Bible translators say, something to do literally with our, with our intestines. So that when we see someone suffering or in need, you know what happens to the Christian because they have a tender heart? It's as if their, their intestines are, are just moved and, and, and they have to do something to express love and care, kindness for those in need. Oh, this, friends, of course, this is the way, as we should, uh, uh, should suspect, this is the way of the Savior. As uh, we read it, for instance, Mark 6, 34, Jesus is being um, chased by a crowd in Mark 6, 34, and the Bible says this, when he went ashore, when Jesus went ashore, he saw a great crowd, a great crowd of folks, most of them all unbelievers, probably some Christians there who already believed in him. But he saw them all, and the Bible says he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. So Jesus sees this great crowd. I mean, a lot of non-Christians there. He doesn't say, oh, good riddance to them. I don't want anything to do with them. If they're elect, they're elect. No. <laughs> he sees this great crowd caught in their own sin. And the Bible says it's as her were his, his very intestines ah, are moved deep within, inner from within. There's a movement to show kindness. He says, come here, let me teach you the way of life. That is Compassion. It's what God has for us in the Old Testament. Remember, as a father shows compassion to his children, so God shows compassion to us. And so it shouldn't surprise us that if you're a Christian, if you have put on Christ, if you truly believe in Jesus, this marks you. Compassion. A tender heart. Not a hard heart. So we've got harmony. Harmony, not discord. We've got sympathy, not indifference. Um, we've got um, family, not strangers. We've got tender heart, not hard heart. And finally, we've got humility, uh, not pride. Notice what the Apostle Peter says. Finally, and notice he says, all of you, all of me, all of you, I don't care, single, married, young, old, doesn't matter, says Peter. I'm addressing the church, believers and their children. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Or translated elsewhere, humble in spirit. Peter's going to mention this again in chapter 5. Verse 5, he's going to say this to the young. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders, that is older folks, not just elders, serving as shepherds, those too. Clothe yourselves, all of you, he says, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. So I think that means the Bible's saying there is no grace for a proud church. There is no grace 
uh, for a church uh, that sees itself as uh, that sees itself as uh, holier than all others on the planet because of who they are and what they've done. No grace for them. Of course, they won't be looking for grace. It's to sinners that grace comes, not those who proclaim themselves righteous. Humility, not pride, marks the church, the glorious body of Christ. Humility, too, is part of the the Christian wardrobe. In other words, this is something that can only be put on if we are in Christ. Ephesians 4 says this, I, therefore, Paul, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. Well, what would that look like? If our life would actually match the wonder and the glory uh, and the majesty uh, and and the grace and the mercy of the God who's called us. What would a life of a Christian look like if it actually matched uh, what God has done in Jesus? Well, this is what Paul says in Ephesians 4.2. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Oh, See, see, a Christian life that reflects humility and gentleness, says Paul, that's a life worthy of the calling. That is, that's a life that hasn't made itself worthy. That's a life that reflects uh, the worthiness of the calling you've received in Christ. It's a glorious thing. The church, here humility means thinking others better than ourselves. This is the problem, of course, with the believer who is always talking and never listening. Why does someone always talk but never listen? Except that they think that what they have to say is always more important than what they have to hear. Humble and in mind, Paul would say, not thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought. And James will tell us, uh, God opposes the proud. He gives grace to the humble. Humble yourself before the Lord, and he will exalt you. There is no room, says Peter, uh, in a church that's going to be the church in a world that might, might treat it with persecution, but will only treat it with persecution if this is what marks the church. There's no room in the church, says Peter, uh, for peacocks. There's no room in the church for peacocks that is, strutting their stuff, looking for attention, thinking highly of themselves. The church that is persecuted for the sake of righteousness is the church of the humble servant. And this humility, of course, is best seen as all these marks of the church are seen in the one from whom these marks in us come, from the Lord Jesus. Philippians 2.5 says, To the church, you, if you're a believer, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, it is yours already, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God the thing to be grasped or held on to, but emptied himself, he came by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself 
by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the most wicked, cruel kind of death known at the time. He did it. This same Jesus, you'll remember, who washed the filthy feet of his disciples and then told them, I have left you this uh, as an example. So in the church, we don't climb up the ladder. We climb down the ladder. We try to outdo one another, not in climbing over each other, but we try to outdo each other in getting below each other. How much more can I serve you? How much more can I be used of the Lord? How much more can I walk in the path of the who humbled himself even to the point of death? You see, in the church we don't climb up. We seek to climb down. Because that's where our Savior was, you see. Humble. Did not come to be served, but to serve. Well, this is the glorious body of Christ. This is who the church is in Christ and who we are called to be. Let me end with Kuiper one more time. What then does it mean that Christ is the head of the church? It means that the church has no life apart from Christ and, listen, receives from Christ whatever life it has. If any of these things mark you or I, the only reason they mark you or I is because we've received it by grace from Christ. It means that the church was originated not only by Christ, but also from Him, and here's important, cannot continue to exist for even a moment apart from Him. It means that the church in all of its members lives and operates only through Christ. It means that one and the same Spirit, even the Holy Spirit of God, dwells both in Christ and in His church. And it means that the life which Christ has imparted to the church and keeps imparting to it is His very own. What glory, says R.B. Kuyper, what glory for the church. The glorious body of Christ. Why is it glorious? Because the life of Christ himself is meant to be seen uh, through us. Harmony, not discord. Uh, Sympathy, not indifference. Family, not strangers. Tender heart, not hard heart. Humility, not pride. And so next Lord's Day, when you reach your hand to welcome uh, Bobby and Ruth Mendoza, You give them that right hand of fellowship that includes all these things for God's glory and for the good of his church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for for your word and, Lord, the many passages of Scripture that describe for us uh, who we are in Christ. Lord, before we ever think about uh, the the danger of the world around us, Lord, we think about the danger within that we would forget what it means to be a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, we pray that we would be reminded today that all our life is in Him, and that because we are in Him, that You have called us uh, to this kind of life. 
having that, that unity of, of mind, having sympathy uh, with one another, knowing that we are called to be loving the brethren. This is our, our family right here. That we are to be tender-hearted, kind-hearted, even as our Savior. And that because all that we have we know comes from you, Lord, that we would be humbled before you as those who gratefully in faith receive with thankfulness the life that comes to us in Jesus, that we might reflect something of his life to the world around us. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.